my dad was a very strong and powerful man to me. Um, not just because he was my dad, but because my dad grew up um, going to the gym. And he was a weightlifter and, and uh, for a while was was a pretty big guy. Um, was very strong and muscular and knew that as a fireman, he went to the gym, he worked out there, but he also was a part of the old French Riviera spas, if you remember that. And, um, and he would tell me those things and tell me stories about going to the gym. And one of the stories that, that always stuck with my head as a kid was he was telling me about a guy that was, was lifting weights one day at French Riviera and he was doing bicep curls. And he was doing way too much weight, and, and, and he had obviously had a previous injury, and he tore his bicep muscle. And he told me that he watched this guy's bicep muscle literally curl up into his arm. And I'm not trying to be gross to you this, this afternoon, um, but I want to make a very important point, And I want you to think about, one, how strange it was that that fascinated me, um, but two... Just, just the way in which our God has created our bodies. You know, I, I looked up, I had to look up this week because I'm not the smart, but I had to look up the over 200 to 300,000 muscle fibers that make up two muscles in your bicep. And the stress that he had to put on his body to literally rip or tear that um, from it, from, you know, from his bone structure, um, and, and yet, just the, the amazing way in which God created our bodies to do such a thing. I mean, think about it. You tell your, your, your brain tells your muscles through the nervous system to function, and you can lift heavy objects through those muscle fibers. And when something is damaged, whether you have an ACL tear or you have a, a, a bicep tear or whatever, the, the amount of uh, the way in which it incapacitates you, and, 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 and limit you in, in movement and function. And uh, I think that it is a somewhat difficult thing to think about, but yet a very picturesque uh, illustration this afternoon um, about the church. Because our topic today is unity in the church. And one of the things you'll notice about Paul is that he always describes the church as the body of Christ. And he makes these points throughout Scripture that we are a part of the body of Christ. And one, things, one of the things that he will make in, in our uh, topic today, in our subject today, is that disunity in the body is literally like a tearing away in, in, in our, the composition of Christ's body, the church. And so really the idea that he wants to bring about today in our sermon is, is the desire for him and the call for him and the exhortation for the, the, the believers in Corinth to not be torn or divided or separated, but to be united with one another. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same functions, so though many are one body in Christ and are individually members of one another. And later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now both of these passages make very clear that on a very supernatural and spiritual level, we were united and bonded together in Christ as His body. As individual human beings that trust in Christ, that experience a faith in Him and and repentance from sin, we are spiritually united together so that we are one body with Christ. And therefore, we have a responsibility to one another as we relate to Christ Himself. And so what we're going to focus on today is understanding what unity in the church means, how important it is to be unified in a way in which we might bring Christ glory and honor. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Dr. Ben read that for us earlier, and I'm thankful for that. I couldn't help but relating to Jude's reaction being up here. I sometimes want to cry as well, Ben. So, (laughs) Poor guy. As we think about these passages, I first want us to think about what unity means in being a proper glory. A proper glory. Paul introduces the problem in chapter 1, verses 10, by appealing to the Corinthians. He says, I appeal, appeal to you, brothers, I beg or plead with you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That there be no divisions among you. Now, he immediately begins to appeal to unity on the basis of the name of Christ. He's not just giving a a proper introduction. He's appealing to them as brothers and sisters in the name of Christ. He's literally exhorting the authority of himself as an apostle to say, let me remind you that this disunity dishonors or brings dishonor to Christ's name and his uh, glory. He uses the word in, ver- in chapter 1 verse 10, the, the disunity there is the schemata or the tearing away, the, the splitting of something. We see this word throughout the scripture meaning, uh, for example, the tearing of clothes. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is telling a, a parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Later, he talks in, in, in chapter 23 about the tearing of the curtain when Christ dies upon the cross. Luke shows us that the curtain was literally torn or split or divided. And so I give you that, that painful and agonizing illustration to begin our, our sermon this afternoon because I want you to understand how agonizing it is when there's division and there's disunity in the church. That's how agonizing it is to the glory and the fame of Christ. That we would so dishonor Him and and, and bring about such reproach upon His name because you and I can't get along. Because we decide to disagree in our flesh and in doing so bring great dishonor to Him. So why is disunity such a bad thing? 
Well, we could make the secular argument that disunity is just unhealthy in general. Disunity in families leads to emotional damage to children when moms and dads and husbands and wives fight. It damages the, 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 the emotional state of children to see their parents uh, be so disunified in the home. That disunity will bring financial burden and financial stress to the home as well. Disunity in the workplace leads to a lack of effectiveness and growth and profit. Disunity on the global scene has recently revealed itself to lead to war against uh, nation against nation. And so it's not hard to see disunity from a secular, physical state. But when the church, the unique, supernatural embodiment of Christ, where we have been brought together and unified in Christ... That unity transcends the bloodline of families. It transcends the cultural allegiance to nations and our commitment to our line of work. Disunity is a spiritual illness that attacks the body of Christ and brings about deadening effects to its vitality and its growth. Disunity is sin because it's an unnatural way for a spiritual body to function And it brings reproach against the name of Jesus. Paul tells us and pleads with these believers in Corinth that you should have unity and you should all agree, not for the sake of agreeing. You should agree and and have unity because of the, the honor and the glory that Christ deserves. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So why disunity in the church? Why is it so bad? Because it dishonors Christ. How? Because Christ in himself, with the, as a member, the second member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, embodies unity. When we come to understand God as a triune God, we understand God as a unified God. Unified in every way. Working together in one purpose for one goal throughout all eternity in perfect harmonious relationship. There's no disagreement between the persons of the Godhead. They have no... There's no fighting or or quarreling in their plans or purposes, even though they have different functions and roles in their godness. They each understand those roles and they work together to complete them. One example would be God's uh, work of salvation in the Godhead. Steve Lawson writes in an article on Ligonier, Uh, For Ligonier um, Ministries, he says, Divine sovereignty in salvation involves each of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three work in perfect unity to rescue the same undeserving sinners. Within the Trinity, there's one saving purpose, one saving plan, and one saving enterprise. Those whom the Father chooses are precisely those whom the Son redeems and those whom the Spirit regenerates. The person of the Godhead acts as one Savior. The Trinity is not fractured in its saving activity. It's not divided in its direction and intent as if each person of the Godhead seeks to save a different group of sinners. 
Instead, he writes, each member of the Trinity purposes and irresistibly proceeds to save one and the same people, God's chosen people. Folks, that is the unity that we strive to accomplish. Not that we can perfectly be unified as the Godhead, but that we being in Christ, representing His body, therefore striving to be unified to glorify His nature and His character. And then we must understand that our unity is not some uh, pie-in-the-sky dream, that literally we are called to be unified because we are equipped to be unified. Supernaturally, by the Spirit. Paul tells us that in Galatians that a fruit of the Spirit is, are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those fruits given to us by the Spirit, lend to a unified body of believers. That's why he can tell us that we should be, in verse 10, of the same mind and agree. Paul's not advocating that Christians everywhere will agree on all doctrines. But speaking to a local church, he's calling particularly for us to be of the same mind and agree having what, what, what I would consider be a, a doctrinal unity. Seeking to honor Christ, Paul wants people in Corinth to not live in this fa- f- uh, fractured system of multi-doctrinal opinion. The church cannot be a salad bar of doctrines that you can just choose to accept and hold off from consuming. This type of church leads to multiple opposing doctrines that are seeking to appease people with itching ears in a pluralistic society. If you're not familiar with pluralistic thought, pluralism is the philosophy that there's such diversity in the world that that diversity can never lead to unity. That because of our diversity, pluralistic thought says, just accept the diversity, we're never going to come to a common goal and common purpose. And church, that is an anti-gospel thought. That is literally going against the grain of what God is accomplishing. Taking diversity and bringing it to one point in unity by His power and strength. The very story of the, uh, of the work of redemption whereby God is bringing about His people to save, He's taking people from all different cultural, ethnical, and geographical, uh, geographical places and bringing him together as, bringing them together as one people. Therefore, striking down any idea that pluralism is a true philosophy. Paul is telling them and encouraging them to agree upon doctrinal truths rooted in the Scriptures, founded in God's Word, because it leads to a unified body of believers. This is one reason why we as as a church, we read our doctrinal statement. When we ask you to to join with us in, in covenant membership, we're asking you to agree upon these doctrinal truths. 
And we, we, we understand and know that, that there, are, there are these second tier, these second idea uh, doctrines that, that we uh, find difficult to, um, as we study them, and we might not always agree on things like uh, the, the precise nature of eschatology. But we do ask you to agree upon whether or not that you're premillennial, postmillennial, or millennial. But we do ask that you agree upon the fact that the, the doctrine of last things is that Jesus is coming again. That there is a point in which we will one day see our Savior again and He will make all things new. We ask that you believe and, and, and agree with us upon uh, aspects of the nature of Christ. The nature of the Godhead in general, the gospel, the practices, the nature and structure of the home and the church. These doctrines we know as we agree upon them serve toward the goal of reaching unity among our people. And we would say without apology that the doctrines that we hold to, if you disagree with them, you will be able to find agreement with those doctrines in other places other than here, but we will not bend ourselves to align or fellowship with people that deny the doctrines of the Bible that we hold to as true and necessary. Because we desire a unified body of believers because we believe that it brings Christ's glory in our unity. Secondly, Paul talks about not only a proper um, sense of unity, but a proper loyalty. A proper loyalty. In verses 11 and 13, through 13, he says, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that one of you says, I will follow Paul, or I will follow Apollos, or I will follow Cephas, or I will follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is bringing very clear points to the idea that their disunity in the church at Corinth had everything to do with their disloyalty to Christ. They had found a particular practice in themselves whereby they were seeking loyalty to men and not to God alone. And Paul addresses this displaced loyalty as it's rearing its ugly head and leading to disunity. Now you got to remember that the Corinthian church was influenced by a Greek and Roman culture. And in the Greek and Roman culture you had the popularity of the sophists. Sophists were uh, the common philosophers and wise men of the day. Sophist comes from the word Sophia in the Greek, which means wise. And the popularity of these sophists were they were the celebrity preachers in a sense. They would come espousing their wisdom. They would gain great followings. Those followings would boost their ego and their celebrity status. Therefore, to say that you followed one philosopher or the other had to do with, with uh, the wisdom that that person espoused or taught in the culture. Well, it's best to understand these same practices falling uh, into the influences of the church in Corinth. 
So they lose their proper focus and loyalty to Christ alone, and they begin to shift that loyalty to men in the church, leaders in the church like Paul and Apollos. I think it's best to understand that Cephas necessarily, which is Peter, wasn't a a leader there in Corinth, but Paul is making the statement generally as a leader of the early church that they were guilty of finding disloyalty in Christ and finding their loyalty instead in men like Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. In church, we would say that that is disloyalty. When we turn our eyes away from Christ, seeking Him and placing Him at the center of church and putting ourselves, our focus and our attention and our loyalty on men alone, we have displaced loyalty. And we have fallen prey to humanistic thought, lifting up men above God. And what's happened in the church in Corinth, it's led to factions where these certain people were aligning themselves with these leaders of the church, and I don't believe that these leaders of the church were behind any of this. It was just human nature for them to to kind of categorize and, and align themselves with Paul or Apollos. And I think such a thing to Paul was detestable. And of course, we haven't studied much about Apollos, so I think it's important for us to know who Apollos might have been. A few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 18 as as Paul went into Corinth, as he uh, began to minister there, and we learned that Paul initially came in contact with Aquila and Priscilla, this faithful couple of gospel ministry who became his ministry partners, opened their home to Paul as they worked together as tent makers in that trade. And they eventually ministered in Corinth with Paul and then later traveled with him after the year and a half and they traveled with him to Ephesus, his next point of ministry. And while in Ephesus with Paul, Aquila and Priscilla run into this man named Apollos. And in Acts chapter 18, we're told that Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria and he was uh, well known and, and, and studied in the scriptures. But as Apollos, or excuse me, as Aquila and Priscilla began to listen to Apollos, they began to hear things that he was teaching that were incorrect. And he was teaching them publicly. And so they pull Apollos aside and and they help him understand things doctrinally uh, correct. And we're not really given an understanding exactly of what those things were. But we know that they were faithful to to, to pull him aside to kind of help him understand the right way of thinking about those things as they had been taught, most likely by Paul in their time with him in Corinth. And we read in Acts chapter 18 that that after they had instructed him and and spent time with him, it says that that, um, Apollos wanted to travel back to the area of Achaia from Ephesus. And he was encouraged to do so by them. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla wrote letters to the disciples to welcome him. And it says in Acts chapter 18 that when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 
And so chapter 19, verse 1 says, And it happened while Paulus was at Corinth. So all those things were going on as Apollos was ministering after Paul had left in the city of Corinth. So you have Paul and you have Apollos with this great influence in the city of Corinth. And it appears that through that influence... People began to align with Paul or align with Paulus. And this becomes the major fraction or fracturing, excuse me, fracturing in the Corinthian church. And Paul is calling them out on it in the name of the Lord Jesus that it is ungodly and unnecessary for such an aligning with human beings. He says, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And the statement that, that needs to be circled in your Bible is, verse uh, chapter 13, is Christ divided? The answer, it's rhetorical, no. And yet, here we have a, a group of people that have become so distracted with wisdom and the, the, the wisdom espoused by these men that they literally have taken their eyes off of Jesus and caused division in the church. So much so that in verse 11, it, it, it continues to kind of show us the compounding effects of that sin. In verse 11, we read that it was reported to Paul by Chloe's people that there was quarreling among them. Now, we don't know much about Chloe, but it's a very interesting wording in the Greek language for Chloe to have people. Or literally, it says, those with Chloe. And and the Bible doesn't give us uh, really clarity of who Chloe is, but it's kind of assumed that, that Chloe could have been rather someone in the church in Corinth or someone that the people in Corinth knew, perhaps a businesswoman. And that those people represented Chloe's business. And because Corinth was such a, a, an area of trade, then those people who worked for Chloe reported back to Paul while he was in Ephesus about this disunity. Now that's speculation because we don't know. But yet the speculation leads us to a, an important point. If Chloe was a businesswoman associated with Corinthian, the Corinthian church, and her people so acknowledged the disunity in the church that they were willing to take that report back to Paul in Ephesus in their trading, then you could say that the disunity had reached the outside world. And in reaching the outside world caused a great stain upon the church. That even these people, if they didn't belong to the church, had become so aware of this disunity that it was tarnishing her reputation in the name of Christ. At the very least, if Chloe represented the church in Corinth, the distance alone, getting that information back to Paul, shows how serious the disunity was. So either way that you might interpret that, and as, it, as is who Chloe might have been, we know that this, the, the situation was very dire. And it also says that it was leading to quarreling among them. That word there literally means to, to strife or to have contention. 
Most likely, it, it even uh, it incorporates a, a verbal sparring in a, as an unhealthy reaction to the factions that had arisen among them. This verbal confrontation mentioned could simply just be rooted in the sin of, of these improper allegiances, causing the, the, the believers in, in Corinth to argue and fight with each other in their disagreements. So instead of gentleness and kindness in their speech to one another, their factions and allegiances led to unhealthy sparring verbally. And as I said, Christ is not divided. The emphasis is on the wrong people in the church. We know that Christ is the head of the church and and Paul does not seek to to gain some true allegiance or, or higher allegiance above Christ. And so our, our allegiance in, in the church as, as leaders, as believers in Jesus, must always be focused not on human beings, not on our leaders or, or other well-spoken people in the body. Our allegiance must always be upon Christ preeminently. That we don't worship man, we don't follow man, we follow Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. And to speak in such a way or acknowledge that in any other way would be to dishonor Christ's name as Lord and Master of all. I'll give you an example. The the term Calvinist is an unhealthy term. Those who hold to the doctrines of grace, like myself, understand why that term is used. Calvinist simply defines a person's belief about certain doctrines of the Bible. We believe that those doctrines were taught by Jesus, by Peter, and by Paul. But opponents of their doctrines claim that Calvinists are simply just placing their allegiances on one man in church history, John Calvin. And while I respect Calvin as a good theologian, I don't agree with everything he taught. I do agree with everything that Jesus taught and accomplished for my spiritual good, and therefore my allegiance is not to John Calvin, it's to Jesus, and I stand with him alone. And just to clarify from the man himself, listen to Calvin's commentary on this passage in Corinthians. You'll understand that Calvin wouldn't have sought such allegiance either. Calvin writes, There is, it is true, a certain degree of honor that is due to Christ's ministers, and they also themselves master in their own place. But this exception must always be kept in view that Christ must have without any infringement what belongs to him. That he never, or that he shall nevertheless be the sole master and looked upon as such. Hence, the aim of good ministers is this that they may all in common serve Christ and claim for him exclusively power, authority, and glory. Fight under his banner, obey him alone, and bring others in subjection, subjection to his sway. In short, Calvin says, the unity of the church consists more especially in this one thing, that we all depend upon Christ alone, and that men thus occupy an inferior place so as not to detract in any degree from his preeminence. Paul's focus was not to make much of himself, 
He was not leading a group astray or trying to gain some private uh, following, but instead he he sought to make much of Christ. And in doing so, he wanted to be faithful to Christ as Christ was faithful to save him. Therefore, we as a church must strive not to follow the pastors in and of ourselves. We are mere men that will fail you and disappoint you. There is no high pedestals that we seek to belong or rest upon because it just merely means a higher fall for us. More importantly, we want to exalt Christ in the way that we live. And we hope that you would live the same way. We would hope that you would honor the Word of God in the same way that we try to honor the Word of God. And that we would rest fully and keep Christ at the center of our faith and our work in the church. Finally, we want to look at a proper function. Paul concludes that disunity in the church, disunity in the church leads or excuse me, unity in the church leads to a proper glory, a proper loyalty, and a proper function in the church. Verse 14 through 17, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he kind of gives this little side note. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul's not trying to diminish baptism here. He just simply sees how the, this following of, of man that's, that's arisen with, from the disunity in, in Corinth, it, it came a, a lot of times because of the, the, the influence and the leadership that, that men like Paul and Apollos had given to believers, like baptizing them in the church discipling them in their life. Listen, I'm thankful for the leaders and the mentors spiritually that God has placed in your life that He's used to help you grow, but don't idolize these people. Paul is saying that he's thankful that he didn't baptize a whole slew of people in the Corinthian church because obviously it would have just led to more disunity. Instead, he wants to bring back the the focus of His work. And verse 17 is the crux of it. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul concludes with this powerful statement about the proper focus of the church in relationship to His ministry. When we have proper unity because of our loyalty being aligned with Christ and not mere men, then the church will function in such a way as it was intended. But when there's disunity in the church because of a disloyalty to Christ, then there will be dysfunction. Paul states that he was thankful that he didn't baptize many in Corinth besides Crispus and Gaius because he sees the disunity that it brought. He says that Christ did not send him to baptize. He's not delineating or diminishing the fact that he did baptize and he was seeking to make disciples of all nations as Christ had proclaimed, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But instead, he wants us to see that the proper function of the church is to first preach the gospel. To proclaim the glory of Christ's name. To not depend upon the eloquent wisdom of the sophists that had existed in that time. Or the eloquent wisdom of man that was being proposed and proclaimed in Corinth. But instead to depend upon the power of the gospel that came in the death and resurrection of Christ. And when we are so disunified in the church, we lose our effectiveness in what we've been placed here to accomplish. Proclaiming the gospel. The church is paralyzed in its factions and its disunity against one another. And when we are disunified and we are distracted by these different uh, allegiances that we might have or disagreements that we might have, we are not going to effectively proclaim the gospel to the nations. Making disciples of, of them and Doing what God has called us to do as believers in Jesus. And so verse 17 shows us not that the words of Christ can be emptied, but as some translations say, that that literally the words of Christ are made void. If we are talking about a gospel that saves, if we are talking about, about a gospel that radically transforms then where's the proof of the pudding if you have a church that claims that power to have transformed them when they're acting like the world that's around them? So going back to my earlier statement, a disloyalty, a dysfunction, making the words of Christ hypocritical in a sense. Christ's word will never lose its power. We simply dishonor it when we can't get along. Instead, we as preachers of the gospel, depending upon the true wisdom of the world, must be faithful to continue the life-saving proclamation of the gospel message, not entangling it with man-made wisdom, that causes disputes and divisions, but instead being faithful to trust the words that God has given us and trust the sovereign power of those words to bring about transformative change in us. Matthew Henry says it better than I can. This truth, the gospel, needed no artificial dress. It's shown out with the greatest majesty in its own light and prevailed in the world by its divine authority and the demonstration of the Spirit without human helps. The plain preaching of a crucified Jesus was more powerful than all the oratory and philosophy of the heathen world. So our, ch- our challenge to you today The challenge of unity is also a challenge of faithfulness. It's not enough just to be a church that gets along. 
It's not enough just to put on the gifts or the fruits of the Spirit and therefore serve each other. But ultimately, our unity should lead to our faithfulness in the proclamation of the gospel. That is Paul's greatest understanding and exhortation in this passage. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so church, that's our challenge today. That we would understand the amazing grace that we have received in Jesus. That we would understand that the power of the gospel upon our lives to save us and forgive us, to bring us out of darkness into marvelous light, to bring us into the family of God as we were once enemies. The power of of Christ to not only die upon the cross and atone for our sins in every way and every sin that we've ever committed, past, present, or future, but also His victorious resurrection from the dead, which proves to us that His power is sure and effective. It gives us hope that as we go and faithfully proclaim that same message about Jesus Christ as King and Lord of all, even Lord over death and sin, then we too can trust that He will bring about His good purposes through the proclamation of the gospel from a unified church. And in the end, Christ gets the victory. He will receive the eternal preeminence as Lord and King forever. And our function as the bride of Christ is to focus our attention on the unity in Christ as we accomplish His mission. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for our understanding of why You've created the church and how we are to function. And we acknowledge, Father, the difficulty at times to die to ourself, to die to our arguments and to die to our uh, desires for prestige and prominence. But we know your power is greater than our sin. Father, we don't want to dishonor the church and all that you've sent your son to die for. So we pray... Most specifically, Lord, that our church at Redemption would be a unified church. That we would be unified in our doctrine. That we would be unified and peaceful in our disagreements. Father, we ask that you would help us to be faithful in our unity. That we would be of one mind to to know and understand the responsibilities we have to make disciples of all nations that we would be faithful to share Christ even this week in such a way that you might do a great work with the beautiful good news of the gospel message that you have delivered. And now, Father, as we take a moment to remember the through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, may our hearts and minds be knitted together taking these elements together in such a way that it honors Christ. That our hearts would be full of thankfulness for all He has accomplished for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.